This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Buenos dias. Welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. We're here recording from our luxurious Airbnb apartment in the downtown Jerez. Um, it's been a very nice place to stay, actually, Dave. You've excelled yourself on this occasion. We're within maybe 100 meters of several fine tapas bars. So um, I think we're going home probably a couple more kilos heavier than we would have liked to. Sated. We will be going home sated. <laughs> and of course, uh, my name's Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by Neil Morrison to my right and David Emmett on my left. We're going to be talking about the Gran Premio Red Bull de España, the 37th edition of the race at the uh, Circuito de, let me get this right, Jerez Angel Nieto. Um, is this the, the, the track on the calendar was the most corners named after riders? I mean, we have a Lorenzo corner, we have a Pedroza corner, we've got a Nieto complex. Crivier. Crivier. Ponds. Could well be. Yeah, I think, I think you're probably right. I never thought about it, but almost certainly. It's, um, yeah, a real collection of, uh, well, it's, it's almost like a basis for the Spanish Hall of Fame of MotoGP almost to a degree, isn't it? So, of course, we're coming to you thanks to Fly Racing, Mike. Oh, T-shirts. Beg your pardon, Dave. Uh, Neil letting the side down for the benefits of our video watchers. Um, of course, Fly Racing have a fantastic range of compliments, both off-road off and on-road. And rental street components as well. Uh, over 800 fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains and sprockets. The whole collection of rental, not just the handlebars. Uh, Dave, we're going to continue to hound you until you try a, a rental handlebar. Um, yeah, I've got to me- I've got to measure my bars up, so um, I shall try and do that when I get home. Yeah, and as we mentioned before, Neil and I would try to you know put an effort in for the team by a getting a motorcycle and then b getting a motorcycle license. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty-one races had. <laughs> Twenty-one races. Yeah. Our audience is already going to be tired of us by then. Guys, um, first of all, let's talk about what happened yesterday. Uh, we were all working and covering the Grand Prix. It was mighty toasty out there, wasn't it, on Sunday? It was the hottest day of the weekend so far. Uh, Neil, what was your moment? Uh, my moment of the weekend was, I mean, the fight for third place, I think, on in the MotoGP race was really quite exciting. We had, uh, obviously, Mark Marquez, Jack Miller, and Alicia Spargaro on track for the majority of the race. And um, the little succession of moves on the lap that Mark attacked Alish, then Alish attacked Jack, and then Mark lost the front at the final turn was uh, probably the highlight of the race for me. Mark's uh, save on his left elbow uh, was pretty impressive. It looked as though he was going down. Um, and uh, that was just enough to give uh, Alicia Spargaro the edge and to get clear for his podium. So it was uh, it was great, you know, good rides from all three of those guys, Marquez in particular, um, might may have thought that this was going to be a real disaster of a weekend, but he managed to salvage it with a, a spectacular ride. So um, that was uh, yeah, him doing the absolute best with what he had, I feel. Yeah, it wasn't a barnstorm of a Grand Prix. I mean, I loved it just from the fact of the study of Peko Bagnaia and also Fabio Quattararo in that it wasn't even a battle. It was almost like a duel or a staring contest for the lead. But as you mentioned, the battle for third place really gave us some action highlights, didn't it? So, and Jack Miller as well commenting that, you know, he was struggling particularly in turn five to get the Ducati turned and that gave Mark the opportunity to go through and start mixing things up. Dave, I know what your moment of the weekend is, so I'm going to come to you last because it's, it's lovely. But um, for me, I have to say, I, I just, I love the pole position that Bagnaia took on Saturday because I think it really laid down a template not only for this Grand Prix, but potentially what he could be doing from here on in the season. It was the best left ever, uh, lap ever of Jerez. I mean, it was half a second faster than Maverick Vinales' previous uh, distinction. And I think that really just sent out a loud message to everybody. Um, in the press conference on Saturday afternoon as well, it was quite curious, you know, to, to hear Bagnaia saying, yeah, this is Fabio's track. And then Quattararo also saying, well, yeah, I believe this is Bagnaia's race. So they're being very complimentary to each other. So was that a slight first strain of mind games we're going to be seeing or was that just them being very polite so there's this little dynamic that we saw at the end of last season bubbling up again so that was uh, that was the kind of highlight for me so dave well, they are very polite the two of them um i which i think is a bit of a shame we need a little bit of uh, a little bit of niggle between them but i'm sure that will come as the championship comes down well for me the highlight was coming in in the morning on sunday morning surrounded by motorbikes i mean i love 
I mean, there's no feeling like going to a race on a bike. I couldn't come here on my bike, even though I did actually look at it because of the outrageous price of hire, of hire cars. Um, it didn't end uh, uh, end up doing that, uh, and it was just it was just wonderful. You really feel like the enthusiasm, and that really typified the whole weekend. I mean, like all of the fans, the uh, the the fans were going absolutely mental. Sort of six, uh, they they were already packing the grandstands at about sort of five o'clock or five thirty in the morning. Um, and it's a couple of our photographer colleagues were saying, uh, Cormac, um, Ryan Meenan and Rob Gray, Polarity Photo, were, were saying that as they were going around taking uh, taking pictures, this, the crowd was shouting at them, saying, photo, photo, and getting them to take photos. And they're going, way, every time they uh, they took a photo, even with, just with their phone. So it was just um, uh, the, the crowd really wanted it. And, like, I, mean, I don't really like people very much. But uh, <laughs> for the first time, I really felt, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the race is so much better with the with the fans. It, it it makes so much of the atmosphere. How good was the drive-in with uh, Pink Floyd blaring over your uh, sound system, Dave? Well, I had uh, set the set the controls to the Heart of the Sun going at full pelt. So uh, yeah, it was very good. Uh, Neil, I mean, we wouldn't talk about it as a classic um, Hares Grand Prix. I mean, we've seen far more spectacular atmospheres, I would say. But then maybe because of the pandemic and the fact especially from the three of us, you were working both here last year and in, well, I was here as well, but in 2020 with a double where it must have been like MotoGP in a vacuum. It was must have been a pleasant return to form. Exactly, yeah. Um, maybe it wasn't the most vociferous uh, hereth support that we've seen, but uh, as you said, the fact that it was the first time in three years that we had people uh, in attendance um, just reminded us what, uh, what a great atmosphere can be. Um, yeah, you, you saw football stadiums uh, devoid of crowd and it basically sucked the life out of the contest. Wouldn't say it was quite the same in MotoGP, but certainly coming to the races in 2020 and a large part of 2021, I mean, yeah, you didn't get that buzz that you have when you come in and there's queues outside the track and the, the grandstands are sort of buzzing and, and, and already full. So, um, yeah, it was it was great to see that. And um it was, uh, you know, let, let's hope that uh, there's a few more of those kind of uh, atmospheres coming up around the corner of Le Mans next and then Mugello, of course. I think we said on the show last week that Jerez is one of those Grand Prix that you do like to recommend to people. I mean, I think it's the combination of usually the climate, which is reliable. Um, the Spanish fans, obviously, as we've said, have their own uh, distinct wave of passion. But then, you know, we've been staying in an apartment downtown and, and just walking around to get some food uh, or take a break or even, you know, we've parked the car quite away because the, the, the center of Herat is quite historic and there's, it's not exactly built for the 21st century. And it's also half of it has been dug up. Yeah, <laughs> yes, quite a few roadworks going on. But the, I mean, it is full of people, you know, with uh, MotoGP apparel. It's very clear that MotoGP is in town. Um, it, it gets the feeling that this, this is what a world championship event should be like, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it should be. You know, the, the, the fans... The fans should be here. They're part of it. And especially Jerez is one of the places where the, uh, the, the fans actually drown out the, the, the bikes. And if you think it's you know, 130 decibels, that is very loud. Let's move on to some of the talking points we saw from the Grand Prix. Neil, uh, coming over to you first, let's talk about the winner um on thursday in his media debrief Paco was talking to us and he was showing us the range of movement in his shoulders he could lift his left arm up fully but his right one just arrived to shoulder height it looked like he was kind of doing a front crawl actually um you know he mentioned that it wasn't a question of strength i mean he had strength in the joint but it was just flexibility but none of those factors or any of those worries seemed to inhibit his capacities on the Desmos Adichie. Yeah, I think uh, all of us at some point uh, during the race were expecting him to um, relent ever so slightly with his, his rhythm and his speed, um, but he was able to basically put that um, physical uh, strain to one side, I guess. And, uh, you know, what he did in the closing laps, I think, as uh, Quattrao continued to put him under a severe pressure was, uh, was I mean, absolutely exceptional. Really, really impressive. Um, and it does make you wonder where this uh, where this Peko has been for the first, uh, well, four races of the year. Um, clearly, there was uh, something done 
uh, on the bike uh, ahead of uh, Portimao because we saw the best of him in that race as well when he came through to eighth from 25th in the grid. Um, but this was a whole different kind of race. Um, and in terms of, of physical exertion, I think maybe another class of race as well, just because of the heat, because of how difficult the Jerez track is. There's no real place to get a let up at all. And um, yet the, the stakes were so high. I mean, we can foresee these two guys fighting for the championship this year, maybe with one or two other names involved. Um, so it was the first real um, duel between the two guys. And, uh, you know, Peko came out on top. Everyone was coming into this weekend saying that this was uh, Quattararo's track. This was a, a perfect opportunity for him to uh, score a win. Someone even likened the rest to the Saxon ring um, for Mark Marquez. Yeah, just for Quattararo. Um, but, uh, you know, Peko stuck it on pole and, um, you know, managed the race, didn't blink towards the end. You know, highly, highly impressive. Do you think it's the change they've made on the bike? Or because Bangai was saying a change in philosophy yesterday in the press conference. He was saying, we stopped trying to adapt the bike fully to me and now I'm trying to adapt to what we've got. And Jack Miller, in his uh, explanation to us afterwards, was saying, well, yeah, that's what it's got to be. I mean, it sounds incredibly simple, but I guess. Pekka was looking for the, those um, that sphere of performance that he had last year and thought, well, you know, I need to, to hone this package more because he was very complimentary in preseason testing, but it didn't quite work out, as you pointed out. Yeah, yeah. I think the first four races of the year maybe weren't quite as bad as they, as they appeared initially. Um, you know, obviously, the first round was beset by issues with the front round height device and they were doing a lot of testing even right the way through free practice, which is not ideal for Pekka. He's a guy that likes to have a settled... Uh, set up and, and just focus on his own riding through a race weekend. Um, I think he would have had a decent race in Indonesia had it not been for the rain. He didn't quite um, get the best of the rain tires there. And then Argentina was actually a pretty impressive performance considering he looked as though he was about to completely lose his head in qualifying and uh, free practice four um, and free practice three, I think, as well. Um, and then America, you know, we got a top five finish. It wasn't spectacular, but it was solid. So, reasonably you know feasibly he could have come away with top six finishes in each of the first four races but circumstances um played a part um he's now talking about being able to break uh even stronger than and enter turns uh than he was at the end of last year which uh, must be quite frightening for some of his and ducati's rivals this year and um yeah i mean yeah if he can start building up ahead of his team now um he's going to be very hard to beat uh, dave you you don't get a more pressurized saddle in MotoGP than being an Italian on an Italian factory team for a manufacturer that haven't won the world championship since 2007. So Bagnaia already has a big microscope on every action or the way he behaves, the way he conducts himself. But do you think the fact that Inea Bastianini has taken two Grand Prix wins this year, you know, we've seen the likes of Jon Zarco make the podium, Jorge Martin look incredibly fast, but crashy. Uh, you know, is this, has this added up to maybe a little bit more of an extra ball around Bagnaia and that he's just struggled to break out of it? I don't think so. I think it was just that they they changed so much on the GP22 and it took them a long time to sort it out because you saw the same with, with Jack Miller, really, um, that it took him sort of a few races to actually figure a few things out. Same with Joanne Zarka. It was very up and down all of them. I mean, uh, there has been a Ducati on the podium at every race so far, uh, but it's been a lot of Ducatis, which is a sign that the potential is there, but it was difficult to get out. Now, I think it was uh, maybe Austin, where uh, both Jack and um, uh, and Pekka were saying, okay, yeah, no, we're getting towards a, a, a base setup. And then we saw exactly the same at, at Portimao. They said, no, no, no the, we think we have a base setup. This, I think, has been the big difference. The big difference has been uh, having a, a setup that works everywhere. That has helped like a lot. That has made, you know, the bike now works everywhere. They, they, or they've got a starting point. Maybe they turn up one race track and it's not quite working the way they want, but at least they've got like a ballpark figure. And that was what was missing, uh, from sort of previous races. And I think this is, this is the big difference and why they're much more competitive now. And also why Pekka Bagnaia is now, uh, I mean, for me, Right now, it's Fabio Quartararo versus Pekka Bagnaia for the championship, and then we'll see how Mark comes uh, comes later in the year. But fifteen races, we've still got a lot, a lot of racing to do. Yeah, and uh, I think Pekka said something quite interesting in the press conference after the race, where he said, 
you know, you have to start adapting yourself to the bike and not always adapting it to you. And it seems as though after being befuddled and frustrated that the new 20 or the 2022 bike wasn't doing exactly what he had at the end of last year, he has decided and, and understood that uh, it should uh, or he should uh, adapt his riding style a little bit to the, the slightly different characteristics of this year's bike. So, um, you know, that's paid off. I do, uh, do we seriously, I mean, it's been a race between Ducati and Honda really to get their new bikes into race trim and, and to a point where they're going to be competitive everywhere to take Grand Prix wins. But do we think that Peko now is on a level where he can start racking up the consistency that's going to be required? 100%. I mean, hundred percent. This is this is the start of you know what you're going to see for the rest of the season. I think. Um, I, I think that this is this was also what he needed just for his confidence. So you know, getting his head around it. And, and again, the difference between Honda and, and Ducati is the Ducati was a new bike, but it wasn't a radically different bike. The Honda has been built from the from the bottom up, and I think we had a a question from a listener, sort of you know, why can't they just roll out a couple of 2019 bikes? Um, they can't. The rules ban it. They they prohibit it. You have to homologate a bike at the beginning of the year, uh, at the beginning of the year, and you have to use that. Or well, you you have to homologate an engine. And the thing is, the difference between I mean, this this engine is physically very different because you can actually see it when you look at it. The engine mounting points are all in different places, and that means that the, the, the they've changed the configuration of the engine sort of under the uh, the fairing as well. Uh, so you couldn't even slot it in. Um, it's no point. And the other thing is, like, if you did put a 2019 bike uh, on the grid, it would get its ass handed to it because <laughs> uh, we're in 2022. They're, you know, they're different motorcycles. It, it was fantastic in 20 in 2019, but it isn't in 2022. We're going much, much faster already. Race times are improving every, every yeah. Grand Prix. Yeah, so I, again, this this record, I think we were one or two seconds faster. Five. Than, well, five seconds, there you go. Five seconds faster than anyone. So, yeah, add that on top of Mark Marcus's time uh, and it tells you how far back he would have uh, he would have been. Yeah, I think a race was 10 seconds quicker in Qatar as well. And even though we had, obviously, Mandalika was a, an inauguration, so that was the first time we didn't have any frame of reference. But, yeah, like you say, I think it was Luke Pillington that sent us the question in from Patreon. So um, just a reminder to everybody who follows us on Twitter and Patreon, please do send the questions in. We'll try and get you some answers. On that note, I do wonder how long it's going to be before they say to Simon Crafer, you know, you're only allowed in the pit lane from this time. Or they're going to be quite quick with the, the shutters on the, on the pit lane. Well, they're already like absolutely hair triggers uh, uh, from the, uh, on the old shutters and the rest of it. I mean, the, the only chance you really stand of seeing bits and bobs is when um, they're in a real rush, middle of a session, they suddenly have to make a big change in the bike and they, they, there's no time to actually change things and uh, uh, you know to, to actually hide things to put the shutters up and uh, and uh, you know you know hide everything away they need to get a shock in or they need to change the forks or whatever they need, they need to change something uh, so it's just not time they're in a in a real rush and then you sort of see little bits of bobs appearing I mean we're not talking Mugello or, or Le Mans status of like uh, antiquatedness but the the Jerez media pit lane and media center is somewhat old so therefore we were saying a couple of times over the weekend how you know they were warming up the motor gb bikes and it was almost rattling the floor underneath us i mean it sounded like some hounds from the depths of hell i mean when they was they were doing these things and of course they're not going to be warming up the bikes in the pit box. They have to weed them out to pit lanes. So that's the exactly. I mean, it's actually been uh, there was a rule. I think maybe one or two years ago, where they prevented people from actually starting the bikes in the pit boxes, uh, which is sensible because you don't want a lot of uh, burnt exhaust gases with all sorts of exotic components flying around there. It's a really good way of getting. Uh, or to lose some, your hearing even earlier in, in life. Well, I mean, most of them lost their hearing, but uh, <laughs> so that, that's that's a bit of a lost cause. But the especially the um, uh, the, the exhaust fuel it can be fairly noxious it's, there's, it's thrown out all sorts of unpleasant gases especially once you first start it up uh, so it's, it, it's just very very nasty um, uh, so they're not allowed to do that they have to roll it out uh, and there are always opportunities for the enterprising um, uh, observer to have a proper close look at the, bi uh, at the bikes because uh, for example when the bikes are on the grid um, they line the second uh, the, the spare bikes up in pit lane and there's generally not very many people around them so you can have a proper old gander at them it's uh, it's 
I, I, I like it. What do, what do we think of the, the veil of secrecy that we find in, in MotoGP? Because in, in one aspect, it seems quite ridiculous. But in another way, you would understand if a manufacturer is spending millions or hundreds of thousands of euros developing certain parts, then they also want to be a little bit coy about it. And Dave, you know, we were lucky enough to be invited to Alpine Stars to have some lunch over the weekend. So thanks again to Chris Hillard for organizing that for us. But um, you know, we asked him about the shoulder cam that Alex Rins showed off for the first time in Red Bull Ring, I think, last year. Uh, and Austin, was it Red Bull Ring or was it Austin? Oh, no, no, it was, I can't remember. But, yeah. Well, I think it was maybe... It doesn't matter, it was a great camera. It was a great camera. I'm trying to think what venue it was now. Well, Red Bull Ring was the first time we really saw the Suzuki ride height device yeah. in action, so maybe I'm making a mistake for that. But, you know, that was another example of how... You know, that particular camera view, which is brand new to an audience, it was showing stuff that only riders had seen before and, of course, mechanics. So there's that, you know, new window into MotoGP that people might not necessarily want others to see. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is that to a certain extent, it's also a healthy dose of paranoia. Uh, if you want to know exactly how many revs the thing does, all you need to do is listen to the onboards and uh, filter out the, uh, the filter out the noise. Uh, that will tell you uh, firing intervals, max revs, a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, it will tell you a lot about the engine configuration. Um, a lot of photographs you can actually sort of get to see you know geometry weight distribution that sort of thing if you're an engineer there's a lot of the sort of variables you can't see which they know will be able to fill in or take a very educated guess at um there's lots of stuff you can't tell so for example uh, you know you'll look at a frame and you'll know you'll have no idea or you'll have a you can make a rough guess at what sort of certain stiffness characteristics might be, but you know you can't see how thick the the walls of the frames are, for example. So you can't see you know where where the frame is, where the aluminium is thicker, or and where it's and where it's thinner, or in the case of KTM steel. Um, so you can make educated guesses, but an educated guess is not as, not the same as actually knowing. But it, it, you know it helps. And if you're spending fifty million a year going racing, then spending sort of a couple of hundred grand just to do a little bit of spying. Is a uh, is a cheap way of uh, it's a cheap investment. It was curious uh, actually in the media sense. I think it was yesterday or perhaps Saturday. Uh, we were talking with some photographer colleagues who you know cannot use certain types of photograph for media purposes because if it was, uh, I think the the shot in question was uh, um, fully Bradle, side on, fully side on, breaking into a corner, a motion blur in the photograph. So it's it already has inaccuracies there, I guess you could say. But then. You know, Honda believed that their motorcycle could be intensely measured and scrutinized just from that fully side-on photo, it seems. Yeah, I mean, it can because the thing is you're not looking – I mean, the, the difference in those photographs is sort of at the millimeter level, and you're not looking at the millimeter level. You're looking at sort of um, a couple of – Yeah, exactly, but also a couple of millimeters. So you are actually, you know, measuring everything up and all the rest of it. I mean, I, the, the, if you walk down pit lane, when you see – if you go on, ever go on a pit lane walk, you'll see the bikes all sort of stood out there, but you'll also see that all of the um, bikes have their – have their front wheel at an angle because if you put the put it at an angle you can't actually measure up the or it's much more difficult to actually measure up the the, the uh, uh, fork angle so you know you can't you can't sort of have a guess at, or you can't see and measure rake and trail you have to sort of uh, you have to sort of guess it and that makes that makes it more difficult for people to find out but it's I mean like I say a lot of it's paranoia a little bit of it is um, sensible precaution sort of thing. We're going to say quick wait here on the Paddock Pass podcast, but then we'll be back with some more talking points from the Grand Prix of Spain. Renthal Street, Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're talking about the 37th Grand Prix to be run at Jerez this last weekend. And Dave, um, aerodynamics, ride height devices, and some little problems for riders with these small additions to motorcycles we've seen crop up in the last couple of years. That was one thing you wanted to get your teeth into. Uh, yeah, because, I mean... It was a very tense and exciting race between uh, Banyar and Quattararo, but really, 
Quattararo knew that he had three laps, basically, you know, three, four laps to try and get past Bagnaia. And if he didn't make it in that time, um, he would have to wait and hope for an opportunity later in the race or, um, you know, hope for a mistake. The, the issue is uh, ride height devices, uh, aerodynamics, they're putting more and more load on the front tyre, and so the temperatures in the fr- in front tyres are going up and up and up. Um, if you get behind someone, the temperatures rise much more quickly. Um, talking to Piero Taramasso from Michelin and also from uh, Andrea Bergami, who's a, an engineer at Brembo, uh, they were saying that the way that the bikes have developed in the past three years has been astonishing. They've made huge steps forward. Um, Andrea Bergami from uh, Brembo was saying that <clears throat> normally they see braking performance increase about 1% a year. And the past couple of years, it's been up to 10% a year, which is just astonishing. Um, is that also demands on the on the equipment on the material? Yeah, it's also it's also creating demands on the material, which is why we see Brembo. Uh, uh, we used to be uh, the maximum disc size was three uh, three forty millimeters, which they used at Mategi. I mean, originally it was just we've got these three forty mil discs. We have to use them in Mategi because that's where the braking is hardest. Uh, then it was you know uh, Mategi and uh, Spielberg. Uh, now they're using three forty mil d- d- discs everywhere. Uh, the the 330s barely get used at all, and they've introduced the, these 355 mil discs and these vented discs. We saw them at Austria last year with the weird sort of uh, like veins on the inside to help cool uh, cool the temperatures. Um, and it's all just because there's more and more braking energy going into uh, into the bikes. So because you've got uh, the 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 aer- uh, aerodynamics helps keep the front down. Uh, and the ride height devices changes the way the bike the bike pitches into um, uh, into a corner, and it's helping riders actually brake much later. Um, that's helping, or that's meaning that it's very very easy to over uh, overheat a front tire if you get to, if you get too close. But also, it makes it you know the, the shorter the braking distance, the more difficult it is to overtake. Um, the aerodynamics also because. The most important part of braking is not the bit in a straight line. That's that bit in a, in a straight line is the what the limit there is 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 just sort of the stiffness of the carcass sort of thing. You can't have a very you can't have a, you know a, a, a lump of rubber. Um, it has to give you sort of support into the braking. But the the, the most important part is once they uh, lean the bike in and start trail braking, and that's where, for example, yeah, edge grip. That's where Fabio Quartararo is so good. Also, that's also where you're using using the rear of the bike because when you are uh, braking straight up you're doing it all on the front tire but once you sort of pitch the bike in and you're and you've got some trail grip you can use the uh, engine braking and the rear brake to slow the bike um, uh, and that again is putting lots and lots of loads into the tire um, and it's also more difficult to overtake there. So it, uh, all of these things are, are are really sort of changing racing. It's um, I mean, that was the case particularly for Joan Mir yesterday. Like we saw in the race, um, Mir and Neil made up quite a bit of time on the on the battle for third place, but really just couldn't get involved because he said the pressure of the front tire went up, and of course affects the handling and his ability to make even better lap times. Yeah, you uh, can't turn. Basically, the- basically, you can't turn as soon as the uh, as soon as the temperature goes up, the pressure goes up, uh, the carcass gets very stiff, and it's much more difficult to actually turn the bike. Do you think, I mean, maybe it's more of a philosophical question, but do you think now that the rules of push MotoGP so close together and made it so fantastically unpredictable, but now we're going to need some sort of other innovation or change in order to assist overtaking? Otherwise, we could end up with, um, you know, the, the procession could involve different bikes and different riders, but it, it still could be less overtaking than we'd like to see. Yeah, I mean, it would be very good if we got rid of ride height devices for a start. Uh, but if you think how Ducati have kicked off about the front ride high device, um, there's no way that they would accept it. Um, but Dave, you can see how much of an impact it's having as well already by Miguel Oliveira on Saturday with his qualification. Yeah. I mean, the ride height device failed in Q1. He got a chance to do two laps without it. And he said that the mapping was off. 
the, ele- the rest of the electronic yeah. settings were off. Because uh, the load on the rear tire is different and all of a sudden the thing is spinning uh, um, in, instead of giving drive because, you know, the, the, the whole balance of the bike is suddenly off and then for the, you know, every, everything is off. But the thing is, uh, I mean, why have we got rear ride high devices in the first place? Because we've got spec electronics. Otherwise, they'd be doing loads of stuff with electronics and they can't do anything with electronics. Well, we'll invent something new. So if you take away rear ride high devices, basically in five years, we'd have something else. And I don't know what it is, but I'm fairly sure that Gigi and his, um, and, and his uh, boy wonders back in, um, boy and girl wonders uh, back in Bologna, uh, have got all sorts of interesting ideas about how to make the thing go faster and faster and faster. Surely if, if you want to remove the influence of uh, slipstream, heat, whatever on the front tire, then maybe some sort of diffuser is the next invention we'll see in MotoGP? Um, why? Why not? I mean, what, some sort possibly. Of I like aerodynamics. I I know the least about, and I'm the least comfortable sort of taking guess at because I could. Uh, I mean, I could sit here and spout all sorts of nonsense, um, which I usually do anyway. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like I'm sure there are things that you could be doing, um, and the trouble is, you know. Uh, MotoGP has uh, Corrado Cecchinelli. He ha- they have um, um, Mike Webb with lots of experience. They've got Danny Aldridge. They've got a few technical people. Um, Ducati Corsa has got, I don't know, 60, 50, 100 engineers. Um, HRC has got, you know, they've got rooms and rooms and rooms full of engineers. They will come up with some really bright idea which nobody has thought of because the other thing is the incentives are to go faster um, and it's really difficult to control we've seen it in Formula 1 we've seen it in every technical sport whenever you whenever you make a rule what people do is find the bits that the rule doesn't explicitly ban and exploit that yeah the loophole he doesn't know that much about aerodynamics now. I think we're going to have to find a new expert for the Telepass <laughs> podcast. I mean, there was a point where the hat got him in, um, but I, I think, you know, we're going to need a, someone more studious. It's all downforce, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, let's move, let's move back to the racing itself. Um, one thing I would like to talk about is Alesha Spargaro, because I think this weekend we saw the best and also the most irritating of Alesh. Um, Saturday, the histronics were back, the arm waving. How dare you follow me in, in, in qualification and practice? Um, when Mark Marquez quite fairly pointed out that Alesh is quite high in the championship and he's actually rather quick. So it's not unreasonable to expect him to be towing people. Um, and also, as someone pointed out to me, they used to be the, the two worst riders for looking for a tow were Hector Barbera and Alesha Spargaro. So it's a wee bit cheeky for him to be complaining. Well, the bike is black, so pot and kettle. He should take it as a compliment after all. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. So, but then again, of course, in the race, he showed that the you know the Aprilia is competitive. I mean, he threw the cliche at us that you know his train is arriving and he's firmly trying to jump on it. Um, for me, it looks like the Aprilia is pulling the train. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, Maverick Mignales has his own complications, and you do wonder how much of it is Maverick inflicted. But then you know, Spargaro just really seems to have that bike sorted now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Hareth engineers always say that basically if you get a bike working at Hareth, then you know that it's going to be pretty good over the majority of circuits. I think Simon Crifar was saying over the weekend, the only thing you can't really understand perfectly from Hareth is the bike's outright top speed because of the lack of straights. But everything else, you've got heavy braking, you've got fast changes of direction, different types of corner, short corner, long corner. And um, in the conditions that we had yesterday, I think it was the... uh, it was the ultimate test of um, a pretty credential so far. And once again, they, they, they passed with, with kind of flying colors. Um, you know, Alessia's first back-to-back podiums, I think, in his, his career. Um, and he would have been a lot closer, you feel, to, to Mark, sorry, to Benyaya and uh, Quattaro at the front had he not got held up by Miller and uh, Marquez in the early laps. But, I mean, we've gone to every track, six tracks, six sets of conditions, six different layouts, and Aprilia has had podium potential at every single one that we've gone to. Um, so, yeah, I think you have to rate it as one of the best bikes in the grid. You also have to rate, I think, Espargaro as um, a guy that's riding at the absolute top of his game and maybe in the long run, a championship 
uh, challenge will be out of his reach. But, um, you know, in current form, I mean, this isn't going to be the last podium we see from him for sure. Um, the bike seems to do everything really well. Um, and, uh, you know, even a guy like Aspargaro, who I think everyone would accept is no Mark Marquez or Jorge Lorenzo, no guy that's been decorated uh, coming through any sort of Grand Prix category. Um, you know, he's obviously riding at a brilliant level. Um, and he is showing the ability to be, you know, a, a really great package. I think if there is one weakness to Aleish, it's his ability to overtake. He's too polite because he sat for a long time behind them. It was really obvious that he was so much faster than both Mark and Jack, um, but it took him 20-odd laps to get past, and he had to wait for a, for a mistake. Uh, where, I mean, if the roles had been reversed and it had been, you know, Mark or Jack behind Aleish, uh, they would have made a hole they would have found a hole put their bike in it and uh you know or force the issue yeah force the issue and uh, Aleish is too polite he doesn't force the issue uh, I, I think that is that to me is his biggest weakness but you know the rest of it he's done really well he's really really fast he's a really strong rider he will be a championship contender but, well he will be a feature of the championship he's not going to win it you know he's not going to do he can't do what Mark, Mark, what um, Fabio Quattararo can do what uh, Pekka Banyaya can do what uh, what Mark Marquez can do. But then, Dave, he could be the Emilio Athamora, he could be the Juan Mir, he could be He's the already right. won the race, so he can't be the um, Emilio <laughs> Athamora. Good point. But he could be the guy that just, just is there, you know, regular top fives. And while, you know, Banyaya might win another four or five races, he could also crash out of two or three um, you know, like we saw in Mugello, okay, there were mitigating circumstances for that particular race. But then, you know, unless you, you get the feeling that he's just going to be hovering in the, in the background most of the time on the current form. And he's been qualifying well as well. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, there's no real apparent weaknesses in that. Aprilia's, um, unless you're Maverick Vinales. Unless you're Maverick Vinales. But we all know that Maverick has his own set of, his own set of issues. Yeah. Um, and let's be honest. Maverick Vinales is no is riding nowhere near the same level as uh, Aleish at the moment. Um, I I mean I would slightly disagree because I do think that Maverick is. Uh, I mean we saw the pace that he had in FP4 uh, on his own. Uh, with a clear track ahead of him when he can ride the bike he is just as quick as Aleish the problem is you don't get that uh, and you have to qualify well and you know he, he, he was saying after the race you know I just can't find he thinks uh, he still has to find a setup to be able to push for a fast lap there is still sort of there are still bits that are missing for him um, I think things are coming together I don't think um uh, I don't think he'll beat Aleish or well put it this way I think Aleish is going to finish ahead of him in the championship uh, and not just because he's got a better uh, a better start but also because you know Aleish has been showing up every week whereas Maverick is I mean throughout his career it's always been the same you know he uh, on his day he will absolutely smoke everybody um, but on not uh, not on his day on all the other days uh, the question is whether he whether he actually shows up but can you say that when we haven't seen one of those days since what March last year I, I, like I say I think the fact that he was just as fast as Alation FP4 I think I think that shows that is a sign that uh, um, he can and will master this bike um, and then it's just down to you know what what Maverick can do himself but I mean yeah he's a he's one of the fastest riders on the grid but also one of the most flawed he's also running out of time Dave but then as we saw in the the MotoGP Unlimited series which is now kind of somewhat in the doldrums or it's been you know paused yes it's in Park Ferme indefinitely uh, you know Aprilia believe when they were getting Maverick they were getting a world champion elect a race winner you know there was clear that Alesh as we discussed before Neil has many attributes that he brings to a team whether it's bonding whether it's high demands whether it's good development and um, that was something I want to talk about in a moment actually but then the case of Maverick you know his contract's up he's been asked about his contract and Joe Roberts, Andrea Dovizioso, Cal Crutchlow, riders who only a year ago were dismissing the Aprilia as a, a, a valid career option, whether that was magic, uh, money or it was over the competitiveness of the bike. I mean, now I think you get riders within the MotoGP class and Moto2 looking at Aprilia thinking, actually, I can probably do something with that. Yeah, I mean, 100%. 100%. It's so a Maverick's saddle is not 
no, 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 super safe. No, it, no, it is not safe unless he can show something. I mean, like, yeah, I, I think we're going to see, shall we say, by um, certainly by Saxon Ring Aston, by the time we get sort of closer to the summer, uh, there's going to be real pressure on him. And there's going to be, if somebody really starts to show themselves in Moto2, I mean, you know, fortunately for, for, for Maverick, there aren't any really clear candidates, you know, Celestino Vietti maybe. Um, and, well, we'll come to Ayagura later on. But, um, uh, yeah, there aren't really real candidates that you think, right, they need to be moving up sort of stat right now. Uh, so that saves him a little bit, but it certainly makes him, it, it, it's just, I mean, if I was a MotoGP rider, then 100% you'd be going, looking at that Aprilia and thinking, that's a pretty good bike, I can win on that. Yeah, that's just kind of the, the tortoise and the hare fable now. He's actually moving ahead and actually leaving the likes of Ta- Takanakagami behind. Also, uh, but the, the, just to point out, uh, Aprilia have lost their concessions now. Yes. Um, uh, the one point for third place is, it gave them six concession points, which means as of now, no more unlimited testing. And then next year, uh, unlimited testing, uh, or sorry, limited testing, uh, limited engines, six engines instead of nine, and uh, limits to the, to the places where they can can test they can't just turn up at any old track and and have a go around it they they have to nominate test tracks um Alesh himself neil is quite a curious case study 11 seasons in MotoGP. he's taken three podiums this year which is more than he's managed his whole career okay the first three years were crt um he was on largely on a hiding to nothing with that kind of technology even though he did take his first russian finish on, on those um i can't remember which bike it was now the ford no ford yamaha. before we've yamaha yes so uh, you know, he's had his opportunity, Factory Suzuki and then, you know, Factory Aprilia. Um, it's hard to imagine any rider now coming into MotoGP and getting that length of time to really establish themselves. It seems that there's more of a a clock on riders. You know, I mean, I, how, I mean, can you give Remy Gardner eight seasons to, to get a podium finish? I just can't see it happening. Yes, exactly. But then again, you cannot exactly measure Alessia's career by wins and podiums when he spent a sizable chunk of his MotoGP career on CRT machinery. He was then bringing Suzuki back to competitiveness after its uh, absence from the class and then, you know, bringing Aprilia up from, um, I mean, the whipping boys of the class, let's be honest, to uh, championship contenders. I mean, it's been a long road. That was never going to be something they could just turn around in two or three seasons. But with Aleish at the helm, he's gradually built that into or helped build that bike into a, a championship contender, which, you know, that is a, okay, it's not reflected in wins, tallies and championship positions, but uh, I think from a sort of a, a value to an engineering point of view, that is, uh, that's a pretty formidable achievement. That's two factories now that Elise has brought up to, uh, uh winning standards, uh, podium standards and, and, you know, consistent competitors. So, um, you know, looked at in that way, I think, um, yeah, maybe you would add a bit more. Uh, heft to his career yeah I mean the, he does a couple of things really really well he breaks really late and really deep um, that's important that's also important to it's the key to a to, to a competitive bike a bike which will allow you to break deep so uh, if he can help do that then that's a lot uh Engines. I mean, engineers understand engines, but you know, he also he's, he's pr- pretty good on the throttle. So he's you know he, he understands what he needs from a bike to go fast. He's an extremely accomplished rider who has been on some shockingly poor machinery in the past, uh, and now he's sort of really reaping the benefits of of being on a good bike. But it still feels like MotoGP is surrounded by this instantaneous need for success that this think, kind of pervades the rest of society to I, I think also um, it's a question of opportunity uh, it's a question of the moment because like like I was saying a moment ago if you look at in Moto2 now there aren't really all that many riders who really sort of jump out at you I mean at some point we presume Pedro Acosta is going to be really good Fermin Aldeguer is really good they're not quite ready to go to MotoGP yet I don't think um, and but you know, beyond that, there's not very many. There's not like last year. You know, we had four rookies. We've got four rookies this year. That there aren't sort of stacks and stacks and stacks of riders who are ready to come up. So I think sometimes things get you get a, a certain breathing space created for you. Um, well, that's what I'm going to be wise to say. A rider that we haven't talked about at all, I think, on the podcast this year, Fabio didn't 
Dijan Antonio. Yeah. Dijia. Let's just call him that. It'd be easier. Um, yeah, we haven't mentioned, but he's probably in a fantastic place where he's in that Jacassi fleet and there are others who are carrying the baton of a pressure of expectation. Yeah. He can and just crack on. Exactly. I mean, you know, everyone's looking at Anaya because he's been so fantastic on that bike. Um, but Dijia can, he, he has time. There's no pressure on him, on him to perform at all, even though Marco Bezecchi is, I mean, Marco Bezecchi has been absolutely fantastic. And again, another lesson like Bezecchi looks a bit sort of on. On off on the um, uh, on a Moto Two bike, but he's been very very impressive. He's still making mistakes, but he's just been very impressive all year. So yeah, there, there is a certain amount of sort of. It, it, I mean, so much of it is just luck and timing, being in the right time at the right place. Uh, you know, if you if you are at the wrong point or or at the at a certain point in your career at the wrong time, and make the wrong decision. Yeah, and make the wrong decision. You can you know mess things up hor- uh, horrendously. Um, it's not an easy time for managers either. I mean, you take you advise a rider. I mean, probably the most high profile example being you know Phil yeah. with Johan Zarco. But surely you you said the Gian Antonio was in, under no pressure. There's a really fast Best uh, rider, Italian rider, leading the Moto Two World Championship now. Did Gian Antonio on the same bike as the guy that has won two races this year? Has has he scored a point yet? I don't think he has. Yeah, but then I he's mean, his oh, first year, whereas the guy who's winning races is in his second. So you at least give, have to give them one year, Neil. And I mean, I mean, Spargaro's yeah. had what? I mean, if you're seven choosing, on factory bikes, if you're if you're Ducati and you're choosing a rider for 2023, and you have a choice of Vietti and Di Gian Antonio, who won one race in Moto Two, are you really going to choose? Did Gian Antonio for him? Then that's the, that's the case in point. For, you know, for, for Digia, it's, 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 it's sweaty palm time all the time. Exactly, yeah. and it depends who gets uh, it depends who gets moved on as well. Um, we have a few riders sort of um, uh, getting older. I mean, Paulus Bargrave seems to be um, uh, seems to have fallen out of favour of uh, uh, of HRC for whatever reason. I mean, it seems completely undeserved because he's actually riding really well and, and really and not for lack of effort. I would think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Mister One Hundred and Twenty Million Percent. Um, <laughs> uh, but. Yeah, I mean, he's you know he's trying, but he's he's falling out of favour. You know, he's running out of time. He's I, th- I can't remember his third. I think he's early thirties. Um, Joan Zarco, Joan Zarco's having a really really good season. Um, but you know, France has got a world champion. They've got really a really competitive rider. Uh, again, he's in his sort of early thirties. Um, he's not going to get better. He's very good, but he's not going to get better. Um, but he seems also seems to have accepted his lot as being Ducati's kind of testing mule to yeah. a degree. Well, y- yes, yes. I mean, you say that as if he had some kind of choice. Um, <laughs> the, 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 one rider at Pramac gets to be the testing mule and it was never going to be Jorge Martin in part because he's so young, but secondly, because he's the golden boy. Um, or is he? I mean, another well, crash this weekend. You know, I mean, well, it doesn't look... He oh. was the goal. I mean, he, he is the golden boy in the sense that they've decided he's the golden boy. Whether he actually is the golden boy is a completely separate question and discussion for another time. We're going to take another very fast break here on the Paddock Pass podcast. And when we come back, we'll be choosing our winners and losers from Hareth. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddle Pass podcast, the final section of this particular show. We're going to talk about our winners and losers from this sixth round of the series. Uh, Neil, over to you first. Who really stood out? Who was your winner from the weekend? My winner was um, not the man that won his first Moto2 race, Ari Gura. That was a great performance from him, but it was the man just behind him in second, Aaron Kinnett, who finished, uh, didn't just finish the race with uh, uh, a recently fractured uh, left radius and a little finger, um, but he actually um, pushed Agura for the majority of the Moto2 race um, and came home uh, pretty amazing second. I mean, just the the sort of willpower and the, uh, the the ability to block out pain, the determination to <clears throat> have that result at a track as difficult as uh, as Hareth. He was saying that obviously uh, he was basically riding with one arm all weekend. Um, and someone asked him in the press conference after uh, the race whether it um, 
it, it was kind of comparable to Jorge Lorenzo's ride at uh, Assen in 2013 when he uh, broke his collarbone Friday, finished fifth on the Sunday, and kind of was like, oh, it, was, it was better than that, obviously, because you know <laughs> Jorge wasn't riding with one arm all weekend like me, and he was sending he was suffering from uh, arm pump as well. Um, can his, I can I just arm. can I just interject it? I mean, it was very impressive, but it was his left arm, um, and the only 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 arm that matters in MotoGP is the right arm because of the breaking. He had arm pump with his right arm. So. <laughs> <laughs> overcompensating so he was riding with zero arms look mum no hands and also would he have done it if it wasn't Jerez I oh, mean probably I mean he's in the, the championship fight the thick of the championship fight we've seen Vietti falter a little in the last couple of races hasn't quite been as strong as he was in the flyaways so uh so yeah, I think he would have done, but uh, perhaps it was just that extra little motivation to really succeed uh, at a track that he likes and has a good record. Not, not enough for us to find out what the dicky bow is all yeah, about. Do you, own, do you own a bow tie now? I mean, you kind of also Obviously. invested in this. Uh, yes, I own a bow tie. Have I ever worn it? I don't think so. Am I invested in this? Probably just to kind of see what it's all about, but I'm, I'm really not expecting Do you own anything. a large pink inflatable gym ball as well for your recovery <laughs> exercises? Yes, I do. I <laughs> bring it to every MotoGP race. We can yeah. see why Neil selected Aaron Kinnett as his, his winner of the weekend. Dave, over to you. What stood out? Um, my winner of the weekend is uh, Fabio Quartararo because... But he lost the race. Yes, he yeah. did. And he finished second and that's why he's my winner. I mean, like, I mean, Peko's performance was better than Fabio's, uh, but I think Fabio comes out as my winner because you know, he couldn't win the race. He finished second. Uh, there was a year, uh, 2019, where finishing second, um, there was another rider who, who did a lot of finishing second and absolutely destroyed the competition. I think that this, that this is a big boost for, uh, Fabio Quartararo. It's really good for his championship. He's now the clear leader. Um, sure, he gave away five points to, uh, to Paco Banyan, but he only gave away five points and also, this was a near perfect ride. I mean, as close to a perfect ride as you could expect from uh, from Peko. But Fabio finished a quarter of a second behind him. That I think but is. I'm not convinced, Neil. Had a I mean, track. Track. Yeah, he wanted a double in 2019. He should have pissed off with it last year, but then at arm pump, he's taken four consecutive pole positions. I'm struggling to see how Dave's making a winner out of this. Well, I mean, I'm playing the long game. This is about. This You're, isn't about, about the winner from the Grand Prix of Spain, Dave. Yeah, because he emerges as the favourite for the championship. He's now clearly the favourite for the championship, and Peko Bagnaia. Um, it's going to come down to Peko versus uh, versus Fabio, but Fabio. Um, made a big step for, uh, to, towards it because when we look back at the end of the year it'll be yes he it, he couldn't win at Jerez but he saved his bacon you know if he'd have finished sort of uh, fifth or sixth or seventh it would have been much worse this was this was a bad day for Fabio Quartararo because he couldn't win and yet he still finished second and he takes a whole load of points when we finish recording this video make sure you don't kick the spade on your way out because you're going to need to keep digging that hole uh what do you think now? I mean, is Fabio, was that a winning weekend? I wouldn't say it's a winning weekend. Probably a bit disappointed for him that uh, he couldn't win at his track, his best track, at Yamaha's, or one of Yamaha's best tracks. I would say uh, there would be a note of concern because of the strength of Ducati and uh, Paco Bagnaia. Yes, he's got a decent lead over Bagnaia in the championship at the moment, but uh, we saw in the last half of last year, once Ducati get everything sorted, it could be uh, quite a tough task for uh, for Fabio to stay clear. Uh, I, I mean, for me, what Ducati and especially Bagnaia have shown is, you know, um, they can win a lot of races, but they are also capable of finishing eighth uh, or 11th or, you know, sort of 16th. And that, I think, is the weakness. That's why I say this was, the, 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 it's Fabio Quattraro who emerges from this one. Where was Fabio in the first, uh, what, uh, race one, race three, seven. race four? Nine, uh, yeah, eight, 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 yeah. Don't worry, Dave. My, my winner was Moto3. I, I think it was the best race we've seen yet. You know, it's easy to find good races in the Moto3 category, but... I think when you get to the point when you have five riders, Neil, going into turn 13, Lorenzo's corner, uh, Lorenzo's turn, what was the official moniker of that thing? Curva de Jorge Lorenzo. Well, there we go, even, even more authentic. When you get you know five riders abreast going into that corner, I mean, it's 
I mean, Dave, I loved your tweets, even though they were laced with cynicism about Moto3, you know, that you can watch the first lap, go and make a coffee and come back for the last lap. And it, there is a degree of truth in that, of course. But, um, you know, what, what a finale. I mean, it also really set things up. Um, is Angavara's move from the outside to take the lead and win the Grand Prix was was very bold, but also incredibly risky. I mean, if anybody on the inside was carrying a little bit more speed, he would have been punted to uh, kind of Alex Crivier style high side on the last corner. Um, but it worked out for him. Yeah, I mean, uh, a long time ago, I talked to Aki Ayo about that and he says he didn't like Moto3 because basically uh, it comes down to who's prepared to take the most risk, which is absolutely the case in this in this case. I mean, it was a fantastic move, but it was risky as all hell. Um, uh, Peter Bomb also says what he looks for in a Moto3 rider, a good Moto3 rider is, are they always in the front few positions? Not leading the race, but, you know, like the, 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 the top three, four, five. If you are there every lap, it means you're not at risk and you're managing the race so it was a good race but I mean for me, for me the problem with with Moto3 is it's like a highlights reel do you know what I mean it's like the um, it, it's like those things that they show in the Red Bull uh, uh, hospitality all the time with people doing lots and lots of spectacular things you think oh wow that's amazing the first time you see it and then you see it again you think yeah no, that's great and then by the end it's just it's just all one great big blur of um, excitement and action it doesn't uh, it, I mean to appreciate the light you need to have seen the dark Goodness me, we're only six races into the year and the, the cynicism is already I'm 57 years old. I've been practicing it a lot. Yeah, God, I thought yeah, I was yeah. bad. I thought it was great finale. Oh, it was great, yeah. I mean, I don't think we've seen many races. We've obviously seen plenty decided at the final turn of rest, but decided by a move on the outside. I mean, I can only think of a few in the past. You know, Eugene Laverty did a great move on Marco Melandri and World Superbikes. Going way back, still uh, being talked about. Still being talked about. Yeah, Luca Cadalora did something on. John, oh no, John Kaczynski did something on Luca Cadalora. Maybe it was the other way round. Back in like 1990 and the 250s. But I, yeah, I mean it was uh, just brave, um, but also brilliantly precise. Um, and yeah, I mean Ethan has been knocking on the door all year. I feel that this is him kind of arriving. Yeah, very, like, very quickly, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, top three talents in Moto Three is Guevara in there for you? Yeah. Absolutely. Who else, you know, from the other two would you say, right, uh, those two need to progress right now? Uh, Garcia. Um, and, I mean, Moreira looks like the pick of the rookies at the moment. He looks really good. Um, Foggia, yes, but he's a little older, more experienced. What a why, is, why is he so bad at Jerez? I mean, like, literally, it's, um, I was looking at his results. He's had... Like he's raced about five times, and I think he's finished maybe once or twice, and he's never scored a point. Did he his get a best point result yesterday? No, no, no. no. Eighteenth. Yeah, his best result is sixteenth. Only five riders finished behind him yesterday, which is pretty wild. Um, yeah, I mean, it was an awful day for Honda in Moto Three. Scott Ogden was the best of the Hondas in twelfth. He was saying that basically. <clears throat> Well, I mean, Honda have done minimal bike development since, I think, 2019 with the Moto3 machine. KTM are, like, adding little bits and pieces here and there. Um, like, for example, I think Dennis Anjou was trying some new forks from WP over the weekend. And just little small changes like this kind of add up. And, um, yeah, the Hondas are a little outgunned, I think, in, in terms of uh, acceleration. They don't have Honda, the, Honda has other things on their mind in, in, in a different uh, class. Quite, exactly. <laughs> uh, also, it can't really break as strongly as, uh, as KTM's Moto3 machines. And, um, you know, it's reliant. In some ways, it's a bit like um, Yamaha when they get a bit boxed in a MotoGP. It can't run sort of wide, arcing, high corner speed lines um, because there's a bike basically breaking harder and late in front of them. So I think that that was really... Yeah, cost in their runners yesterday, but yes, Gogden 12th and Mignot was behind that for G18. I mean, shocking results really for good result for Ogden as a rookie, another good performance, but for the, the guys fighting for the championship, it was yeah, bad. Yeah, the 2022 world champion, how did he fare? He was he had a bad day, he had a bad day. It's your bad days, Dave, that make the difference anyway. On to our losers of, of, the, of the weekend and, and staying within, within Honda, uh, yeah, because my loser is um, uh, Takanakagami, even though he had a really solid performance, a very, very good race. Um, but uh, unfortunately for him, Ayogura won a Moto 2 race and won a race. 
yeah, it was it was a very fine race. Um, uh, and because Ogura won, I think that is pretty. It's getting close to being the nail in the uh, in the coffin of Takanakagami's uh, MotoGP career. Uh, obviously, that Edimitsu LCR Honda belongs to Japan. Uh, they want a Japanese or at least an Asian rider. Uh, looks like it's going to be between Ch- uh, Chantra and Ogura. Um, Ogura, I mean Ogura. That was a, it was a fantastic performance by uh, uh, by Ogura. Um, but I think with that, that is the first sign that maybe Nakagami loses his ride next year, and if not next year, then definitely the year after. Uh, Ogura or Chantra will be up there soon. I mean. Nakagami is still to score a podium uh, in MotoGP and he's had opportunities. He started from pole, obviously the very famous uh, incident at Aragon where, you know, he led from, uh, he led from pole all of four corners um, until he sort of decided to, he thought he saw something in the gravel trap and decided to take a, a closer look. Also, Jerez is one of his best tracks. Yeah, as well, Jerez so is absolutely his, his best track. I think this, well, I can't remember what the other track is, but yeah, I mean, this was his best opportunity to get close to a podium and he came up short. So yeah, I think this was, um, the, this was very bad news for him. Neil, just quickly touching on that, I suspect there's a question of Agura in the press conference saying if he felt he's ready for a GP and he batted it away like an expert saying no, it was his first race. As if he so has much- any choice in the matter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we were sitting next to each other in the press conference and I was surprised actually to learn that that was Agura's first Grand Prix victory in any class. First um, official lap that he led a Grand Prix as well. I mean, that's astonishing, really. And we're talking about a rider that's going to be representing HRC from Japan in the Premier class. Yeah. I mean, even though he fought for a Model 3 crown, I don't think he officially led a lap, a single lap. But um, but he led that race like an absolute pro. So you have to say chapeau to him. There were no sign of nerves there. Uh, for you, who was the, the, the loser of the <laughs> Grand Prix? Uh, it was KTM's Model GP uh, project just because uh, I think we had five manufacturers in the top six. Um, but KTM, Brad Binder was 10th, and this is one of Binder's really strong tracks. Historically, he's been great at this at this venue. Obviously, he had his debut uh, in 2020 and was, was stunning. And um, yeah, just uh, the, the, sort of the, the optimism that abounded after Qatar and Indonesia in the first two races of the year um, has slowly kind of withered away. Um, again, <clears throat> I mean, historically, they've, they've complained of turning issues. It's on occasions, it sounded like um, they have addressed those successfully. Um, but when um, we're on a tight track, uh, conditions are really hot. And perhaps the front tire is is maybe just a little too soft for the KTM riders' liking. Uh, even the hardest front tire that's available, um, the, the the turning issues um, are, are still very much intact. Um, they had a, an awful qualifying, um, both uh, Binder and Oliveira, and um, yeah, that's I guess four races now in the points that. Um, it's just not really been it's not been there they haven't been sort of anywhere near the podium like we we saw at the start of the season and we maybe expected them to be after uh, the start of the season it's still inconsistent i mean there were mitigating circumstances in defense of ktm this weekend they both had rear um tire issues in the race causing vibration which is you know never what you need when you have to make ground quickly of course Oliveira gained i think nine positions from 21st to 12th um brad binder as well made up to 10th before he couldn't you know, proceed any further. Uh, Oliveira's qualifying obviously affected by, as we mentioned, the um, the ride height device failure. So yeah, but I mean, your point is right now, they need a higher level of consistency really to challenge anymore. My um, loser of the weekend, and I, I feel like I'm picking them a lot, but Yamaha, um, purely because, you know, again, we're struggling to see any rate of competitiveness from the other riders. Um, you know, Franco Morbidelli seems to be putting a positive spin on things by saying he's found something with the setup that can help him bridge the gap. I think was it sixteen seconds to the to the race winner. I mean, it was a ridiculous no, amount of time. Twenty twenty something. So twenty seven. I think. I that's. Seven seconds. Twenty seven. Right. So Tim, blimey. So that's still like a vast, vast diff- difference. And he was trying to say that we've got something that will reduce that time gap. So he's going to have to show that very quickly. And I just think every time that Fabio Quartararo vastly outperforms the rest of his brand mates then, you know, he's just increasing the price. So Yamaha are not only looking somewhat Honda-esque on the track by having one rider perform on their machinery that's looking already a little outdated, but then also they're going to have to 
you know, if Fabio's manager, he, if, if, if he hasn't signed on the dotted line yet, then there's still margin for them to go back to the bargaining table and say, well, actually, um, can you throw in like a nice fancy yacht <laughs> on my contract? And, you know, they're going to be strong armed into having to accept it. They do make outboard motors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A couple of nice pianos on yeah. top of that. They're like I, six jet skis. But surely this is a this is a weekend to rejoice because it does sound, uh, coming from the Yamaha camp, that, um, you know, Fabio Quattararo, uh, will stay put for 2023 and 24. Lynn Jarvis said in an interview with Speedweek that um, Fabio will be assessing the strength of the packages in 2023 and 24. Yamaha has apologized to him for the lack of competitiveness or lack of advancement in his package for this year, um, which is, uh, I guess, admirable, has to be done as well. Um, surely the fact that uh, Fabio is, is maybe a step closer to signing for them uh, for next year and the year after that, that's a that's a big, big and, plus point on their weekend. And they're riding with a 2020 engine because the 2022 engine they tried uh, had reliability problems. It was more powerful, uh, but they couldn't make it keep together. So they ditched it. Um, they've gone back to the 2022 uh, uh, engine. Uh, sorry, the 2020 engine. So that's why it's so down on horsepower. Um, but Fabio knows that this engine is there making engines reliable is just a matter of sort of testing uh, and valves. Uh, yeah, valves and, and stuff so yeah I mean like they know it can be done I think also there is a question of uh, I think Frank Mobadelli was saying he's got a swing arm to, uh, to to test and a swing arm is one of those key components if you're looking for edge grip you know the first thing you do is you start playing around with the swing arm to try to get sort of slightly different characteristics Andrei Dovacieso has been saying you know what we need is material um Swing arm is a part of that. So I think there is room for optimism, but then they still have work. And then Jarvis starting to put pressure on Morbidelli, saying that yep. he was pretty unimpressed with uh, that performance. So Morbidelli needs to step it up. Yeah, and you think of all the manufacturers currently testing back at the track, you know, while we're recording this, you know, Yamaha are probably going to be the ones that will have some sort of you know, updates. But anyway, thanks uh, Dave and Neil for chatting over the Grand Prix. Um, this has been the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Fly Racing and Rental Street. Uh, we will hope to be back next week where we'll actually have a weekend off. Do you remember what that feels like, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> Six rounds into the series, uh, MotoGP continues to march ahead. Only 15 to go. Only 15 to go. But uh, we'll be looking ahead to Le Mans, of course, and then talking about any other issues that surface from maybe some contract announcements already by next week. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Uh, we'll be back again soon. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Neil, Hello. don't point your microphone that way. I'm not going to. Yeah. I'm going to point it this way. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you can also point it that way, but that way.